ESV Bible. So if you've got your Bibles with you, open it to Psalm 50. I'll give you a minute to find the place and then we'll start. Right, Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jeanette. Well, good morning. Glad you are joining us via live stream from wherever that happens to be in the world. My name is Rob, and I am one of the pastors here at Wyoming Church of Christ. You know, um, again, it, wherever you're joining us from, grateful that we are able to utilize this technology to still have uh, a platform, a, a a venue, as it were, to communicate God's word to you, to pray together. Um, this is; these are definitely extraordinary times, and I don't mean to sound insensitive, but one of the, I guess, annoying things about this pandemic is just how all-consuming it's been. It feels like that's all anyone talks about. And then at night or in the morning, you flick on the news and there's nothing else going on in the world, right? But COVID-19. And in a sense, there's nothing else that can be going on in the world but COVID-19 because after all, we're on lockdown. So there you go. But one thing's for sure, when something extraordinary like a pandemic happens, people are asking questions. How did this happen? Where did this come from? And when, this is what I've been hearing lately, when is this all going to end? Now, no surprise, there's answers to those questions everywhere you turn. In fact, there's, there's no shortage of answers from tweets to podcasts, to newsreels, to political spin rooms. 
much of which can be helpful, by the way. But here's my concern. In this pandemic, we can easily get into the habit of looking to the left, looking to the right, looking to the center, that we forget to look up. I, I don't mean literally, especially because most of you just be looking at your ceiling, but we forget to look up and think on, reflect on the character of God. We forget to set our minds on things that are above. And with the result that we're sort of pressed on the back foot, trying to make sense of all of this stuff, all of this pandemic, and where God is in all of it, rather than first looking upwards, focusing on God, and then having that color our interpretation of the world around us. So what I'd like to do for the next four weeks is to lift your gaze upwards, as it were, to think on the character of God. It was A.W. Tozer years ago who said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind, friend, when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Who you believe God to be, what he is like, is the single most important factor in your life. So in the weeks ahead, my goal is to bring sharply into focus our picture of God our understanding of God by looking at what's called his attributes. His attributes. When we use the word attribute, we typically refer to the qualities that belong to someone. It is a characteristic of that person. It is a feature that uniquely defines them. In the case of God, his attributes refer to his character, his nature, his perfections, his essence or being. Whenever you meet someone, and if you're interested to get to know them, you want to know their character, right? And it takes time to do that. And so too, if we want to know God, we must study what God is like. Our worldview is governed by who we understand God to be. It is our knowledge of God that determines what we believe, how we act, how we worship or the songs that we sing about God, how we parent, how we treat our coworkers and friends, how we give, all of those things are wrapped up in who we believe God to be. It really becomes the ultimate template, the ultimate paradigm through which we see everything. 
That said, I want to start off this series by looking at quite a weighty, heavy attribute, as it were. Uh, we're sort of going for the gusto on this one. And that is this. We are going to think about God as, if you look up here, as independent or as self-sufficient. Now, in this series, as Sky mentioned earlier, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And there are some, there's plenty of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. But there's also a lot of narrative in the Gospel of Matthew where, you know, Jesus is entering a town here, he's saying this, he's healing this guy, or, you know, whatever. This series is going to be a lot of statements about God. So just to sort of prepare you for that, this, um, it's less narrative. So, well, there's going to be bits and pieces that we look about the nation of Israel and how God responds to them and how he reveals himself to Moses and, and other things. But by and large, there's going to be a lot of statements. Uh, you could say propositional statements. An apple is red, not orange, or, you know, whatever. You know, this is, these are going to be statements. So when I, I'm going to try to speak a bit slower so that, you, you know, you don't just sort of go, bleh, and it just sort of tidal waves over you, but you can think on these statements because they're descriptions of the character of God. So when we start off with this first one, here it comes, ready? God is self-sufficient, or you could say God is self-existent. Basically, God alone is God. He exists in and of himself. Do you remember when God appears to Moses and there's the burning bush? Most people know this. And the bush is on fire and he's interacting with Moses and and. He says, go back to Egypt, set my people free. And Moses says, well, if I go back, who should I say sent me? Like, what is your name? And do you remember how God answers Moses? He says, I am that I am. Or you could translate that, I will be that I will be. In other words, God is self-existent. He is uncreated. He is uncaused. He possesses life in and of himself. That's pretty heavy. I mean, just I was reading this the other day to April, and I read that really fast. And I said, God is uncaused, uncreated, and she said, you have to slow down, so thank you, honey. Hopefully that was slow enough. Now, this morning what I'd like to do is sort of, rather than kind of go, whoa, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this God is self-sufficient. Look, I don't know about you, I never heard stuff like this growing up in church. It was all like the kind of church I attended as a kid, it was happy, clappy, 
you know, here's way, five ways to have a purpose-driven life or whatever. I never heard any of this stuff. So hopefully I can break this down and distill it to make a, a little bit more sense as we think about God. In other words, as we think about God as self-sufficient, wh- what does that entail? What does that mean? Three points, if you want to write these down. Number one, God's self-sufficiency means, and this is probably the biggest one to wrap our hands around. He has life in and of himself. Number one, God has life, God's sufficiency has life, means he has life in and of himself. That's number one. Number two, a little bit simpler, he owns everything. And then number three, which follows behind that, he doesn't need anything. So God's self-sufficiency means he has life in and of himself. He owns everything. He needs nothing. Now, during this global pandemic, I've heard many people say how much they miss uh, connecting with others, right? Even those who are more introverted have expressed feeling a bit flat because they're not experiencing face-to-face engagements with people. And fair enough, because as humans, we are hardwired for relationships with others. We are relational beings, and we feel the void of that when it's taken away. But I wonder if you think about God that way. Did he create us because he was lonely or desired companionship with others? Before the world existed, did God have a need inside of himself that was unmet, perhaps? And to answer that, I want us to look at a number of passages from the Bible that talk about God as self-sufficient, as having life within himself. So, again, maybe you hear that phrase, God has life within himself. And you're just trying not to be distracted right now by your cat walking by um, or dog or kids shouting in the next room or whatever. And you're like, God is that I don't. Yeah, that sounds right. But it also sounds kind of bookish, kind of eggheadish, kind of out abstract. What, do you, what does that even mean? God has life within himself. Well, if we just pull back just for a second, let's think about creation. Okay, it makes a little bit more sense. For instance, in Psalm 90, it says that God existed before there were planets or stars or anything. Psalm 90 says this in verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That, that is really hard to, I mean, you see the description there? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God was never created. He is the creator. He, he never came into being. He always was. Like for us, that's, that's you know, I, I could ask many of you, let me see your driver's license. And it would say, the day, the year that you were born, 
or a passport, or if you go to a cemetery. You know, this guy was born in 19-whatever and died in this time. There's the beginning and there's an end. Not so with God. That's radically different than us, right? We are born into this world as infants and really as totally dependent. Our existence is derived from our mom and dad. And listen, if we are to continue living, the God of the universe must sustain us because in him we live and move and have our being. You see, our nature, our very existence right now is contingent in every way. We're breathing air. We're contingent upon that. Gravity, all of those things. But not so with God. Our triune God doesn't receive any of his life from an outside source. He has life in and of himself. Jesus said in the Gospel of John chapter 5, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Do you understand what that entails? God isn't dependent on anyone or anything for his existence, his nature, or even his own happiness. Which begs the question, what do you think God was doing before he created the world? Was, do you think he was lonely? If he was, let's just for argument's sake, let's pretend God was lonely. Perhaps he needed to fill that empty hole in his heart. And that's why he decided to create the world. That way he could have friendship with others. And now that the world is here, well, God, he's not so lonely anymore. Yippee, right? Because of us, he's happy, he's satisfied, he's whole, he's fulfilled. Now, does that sound right to you? Sadly, that's what some churches communicate in their song or in their sloppy uh, preaching. But the reality is God is not a needy God. It's not as if he was bored twiddling his thumbs, you know, desperately lonely prior to creating the world. God does not need any part of creation in order to exist, to find purpose. He is absolutely independent. Listen, even if this world didn't exist, even if none of us were here, God would still be infinitely loving, infinitely just, and eternal, and all-knowing, and good. God always operates from a status of wealth, not need. Yet, he uses his absolute freedom to serve the needy and to save sinners. He bears patiently with us. He walks with us through our sorrows and dwells with us in time and space. When you ponder that for a second, it's mind-blowing and really gives you a sense of awe and wonder, does it not? That's a God we can worship. 
That's a God we can trust, even in our current circumstances, though they might be dark and discouraging. That's why the psalmist could write in Psalm 73, Who am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Look, friend, if everything were to turn pear shape in your life, and the only thing that you had to look forward to, to for tomorrow is suffering and death in this world, you could still rest and trust in the Lord who is your salvation and your strength because only God is self-existent. Matthew Barrett has some helpful thoughts here on this. He says this, If God were not life in and of himself, if he were not independent of us, then he would not be worthy, qualified, or able to save us, let alone worthy to receive worship and praise. If God were not self-sufficient, then he would be weak and pathetic, for he would be needy and dependent too. He would need saving, just as we do. He would be a God in our world, but not distinct from our world. We might pray for this God, but definitely not to him. I like that. You see, friend, it's precisely because God is free from creation that he is able to save sinners like you and me. God has life in and of himself. And I was chatting with April this week. Sorry, honey, you've, been, you've come up twice now in the sermon. I was, I was chatting with April, and I was thinking, like, you hear a sermon like this, and you go, that sounds really good. Like, that sounds, those are, like, really, like, we want to think big thoughts after God, right? But then you walk away, and someone might ask you tomorrow, hey, what was the sermon about? God is, doesn't, he's, he's big and stuff, and he doesn't, he's, he's sufficient in his self thing. I mean, that, that's how, that's how I act sometimes. That's how, that's how my puny brain works after a sermon. Or, or even just this concept that God has life in himself. Like, how, how are you going to sort of take that just from this moment that you're thinking about it and then remember that tomorrow morning as you're trying to get ready for the day? Here's a suggestion for you. A and if you're a parent and you have kids, I'd really, well, I'd strongly encourage you to do this. And even if you're not a parent, just this is something that I'm going to do at the Jenner house. Because that's this, this massive concept, there is a nice, good, concise paragraph that really sums this up well. Yes, you could pull from Bible verses and all that stuff. That's, that's great. But the Westminster Confession of Faith has a beautiful description, a nice, concise description of this idea that God is self-sufficient. God has life within himself. Take that, print that bad boy out, it's the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2. Slap that on your fridge with a magnet. Look at it. Dwell on it. Meditate on it. Let, let those truths sort of sink down into your blood, as it were. I, I, I'm, I'm going to do that. I need to be reminded of these things. So listen to the Westminster Confession of Faith. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, 
and is alone and and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made nor deriving any glory from them but only manifesting his own glory in by unto and upon them that <laughs> That's pretty wordy. But again, that's what I'm saying. If you slap that bad boy on your fridge and think on those things, to think big thoughts after God. Look, high views of God lead to high or holy living, okay? If we have a puny version of God, then our life's going to reflect that. And so I just want to encourage you, friend, think these big thoughts after God. Um, we, we can easily have a, a caricature, an idea of God that is domesticated, that's safe, that fits us, but it might not be the God of Scripture. And so I just want to encourage you, hey, let's be really thinking and be shaped and molded by this view of God. So, God's self-sufficiency means he has life in and of himself. Number two is just a little bit easier. And most people would say this even around church life. Hey, God, he owns everything. So let's do this, though. Let's pretend that you live in a part of the world where Christianity is not widespread, right? In fact, in your whole life, you've never heard about God or, or seen or held a Bible in your hands before. And one day, let's just pretend, there you are, you're a fisherman or whatever it might be in a, in a, in a, you know, in a village, and someone walks up to you and someone hands you a Bible. Let's say you open up this Bible, say it's in your language, and if you were to open up the Bible for the very first time to the very first page, to the very first sentence, the first thing you would encounter about God is that he is the creator. And as such, he owns everything. Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before anything existed, God was there. And then simply by speaking words, he crafted space Time itself, gravity, the planets, the stars, everything. There was nothing prior to this. No pre-existing matter to work with. He created out of nothing. Now, if that first verse, as you're standing there in the village, and you open it up, if that first verse itself didn't take your breath away, just a few chapters later, you see how this creator picks a guy named Abraham, and decides to make a whole nation out of this dude, who's very old, mind you. And now this nation, years later, is, has its, it's a real roller coaster, has its ups and downs. But there's a point in Israel's history, the nation of Israel, they're called, and they're rebelling against God. And so in response, the Lord speaks he summons them. Uh, turn to, with me if, you know, Jeanette was just reading that for us, but let's look at Psalm 50. Psalm 50. Remember, this is the nation God has chosen to be his people. 
He established this by sacrifice. But, but here's the problem, and it's a big one. Israel thinks that God needs their sacrifices, that they can use these sacrifices as a way to bribe him, to manipulate him. Pick up with me in verse 9. So Psalm 50, verse 9, and notice how the creator of the universe responds to his people. He says, verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. The point is obvious, isn't it? The creator needs nothing. For he owns everything. He is self-sufficient. That's why Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. So, this nation shouldn't approach him, his people shouldn't approach him as the surrounding pagan nations do where they're trying to manipulate their God, they're crafting a God out of wood, whatever it might be, and trying to get what they want and bribe this God. No, 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 no. That's not how they should approach him. Israel is to approach their creator by offering a sacrifice of thanksgiving. You see that in verse 14? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. The Lord doesn't need this people. He owns everything. He doesn't need them. They need him. You know, I remember as a child watching a sitcom. It's quite a famous one. And there's this one point, and it's in an episode, where there is this girl, her name is Vanessa, and she comes home to her parents and she's really upset because she got into a fight. She got into a tiff at school. And the reason she got into a fight is because her classmates called her a stuck-up rich girl, a snob, right? Anyway, as she's sitting and explaining this, this whole tiff that she got into with these girls, as she's sitting down with her parents, she concludes that, quote, none of this would have happened if we weren't so rich. And there's a long silence. Then her dad sits up, folds his hands, leans forward and says, <laughs> let me get something straight, okay? Your mother and I are rich. You have nothing. You can tell your friends and your enemies that. If you're a parent, you can resonate exactly with that, right? It's so true. And if this is true with our kids, how much more so in relation to our Creator? Not one breath we take, not one minute of time, and not one single dollar is truly ours. It all belongs to the Lord, and he can take it away in an instant. Job knew this, did he not? 
So when we serve God and when we give to him, we should do so out of thanksgiving, not forgetting that he owns everything. So God's self-sufficiency means he has life in himself, he owns everything, and last, he needs nothing. He needs nothing. Now, you would think that this idea of God's independence, God's self-sufficiency, God is self-contained, as it were, is sort of insider talk, right? Like you might even be tracking along going, this is good stuff, but look, I wouldn't take this on the road with me. Like, you know, if I'm going to go on a short-term mission trip, like this is sort of like, I don't, I wouldn't lead with this foot. Fair enough, but you know, the apostle Paul did. In fact, when he is in Athens, in Greece, it's exactly this point that he makes. Let me show you what I mean. Go to, the, go to the book of Acts. Turn there quickly with me to Acts 17. Paul's in Athens. And there are philosophers galore, right? And, and notice in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul looks around. He's waiting for his friends to join him. He looks around. There's idols everywhere. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplaces every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now, Paul has an opportunity here, right? He has an opportunity here to launch into, I mean, this is, this is Paul the Apostle. And, and what does he launch into? It's, it's fascinating. Paul preaches a, about a self-sufficient, independent God. He, he does not need humans. He's not a part of the world. He's outside of the world. Look, look what I mean. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are a very religious, right? For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man like their gods do. Right? Their Athenian gods are living in those temples. He does not live in temples made by man. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Fascinating, isn't it? 
how Paul launches into this discourse about God's self-sufficiency as a way to say, look, I know some of you guys believe that God is part of the world, or there's a divine spark within humans, right? And we're all sort of demigods. He says, no, no, no. God is outside of all of this, space and time and everything. And that's the God I want to tell you about now. And points it all forward to Jesus. It is absolutely incredible. Now, in closing, let me take you to one more text. And actually, it'll come up here on the screen. Same guy later writes to the Romans. And when he writes to the Romans, Paul the Apostle, it's incredible how he, he takes 11 chapters to talk about God and who man is. And then look what he says as he wraps that whole bit up. In chapter 11, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, who, who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now that last bit is a bit of a loaded sentence, right? Look carefully, though, at the words Paul uses to describe God. You see it? He says, for from him, meaning the Lord has created and provided everything. And don't miss this. He didn't create and then decide to go on holiday, right? Just to let the universe sort of work itself by itself. No, no, no. Quite the opposite. He's actively involved in the smallest details of nature and history. Nothing happens without his power. Look back at that verse again. He says, now, from him, and then look, through him. He is not dependent on the world for his existence or his self-fulfillment. He possesses life in himself and to him. All things. Nothing was before him. Jesus says, right, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Friend, I hope and I pray that if you call yourself a Christian, these truths rivet your soul to delighting in God, to thinking big thoughts after God, so that when we ponder this, when we meditate on these truths, you're able then to look around the world and interpret it through that lens. It's easy to sort of get caught up and get swept up in worrying about what's going to happen to the economy, what's going to happen to the future of this church, what's going to happen to the future of my health. Look, all those things aren't inherently bad to think about, but let's first look up and take our gaze upward and then interpret the world around us. Amen? I'm really excited because we're going to continue to go through these attributes about God's who who about who God is. So join us next week and we look forward to seeing you then. Let me let me pray just to wrap us up. Oh Lord, we we are humbled as we 
think about your self-sufficiency, your your self-existence. It's a uh, it, we're overwhelmed, Lord, to really process these things in our in our finite brains, even to begin to try to wrap our hands, as it were, around you who are infinite and we who are finite is ultimately it's an impossible task to do but but lord you've revealed yourself enough of yourself you've you've come down to show yourself to us that we may worship you so lord i pray this week that good conversations would happen and in families and friends with this church lord that this wouldn't just be information but this would be truth that's lodged deep in our hearts and that changes the way that we will live we ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week, guys. Look forward to then. Sky's going to come and wrap us up. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, it is really good to, um, to spend that time looking up, isn't it? I know it's very easy to get caught looking left and right and worrying about what's here, but who we think about, what we think about God shapes what we think about um, the world, the worldview that we have. Um, something that I've even been thinking about this week is I was surprised at how many quote unquote essential workers there are. You know, I was only ever thinking about grocery stockers and doctors and nurses, but there's this whole slew of people that we need, that we are, um, we are not self-sufficient. We need all of these people to, to live our lives, but God is not like that. He is not like us. So a very helpful remember, uh, reminder there. Thank you, Rob. Um, I'm very excited to fill in the rest of these arrows as well um, with other things to um, yeah, learn about who God is. Um, another way to help look up at who God is and help that shape your worldview is our Bible reading plan. So if you don't know, for the last couple of years, well, last year and a half or so, we've been slowly just working our way through the Bible. Um, so that's starting up again. I know probably for a lot of us, there's not a lot of difference between school term and holidays right now, but it is school term next week. Um, and so our Bible reading plan will be coming out. So check your emails during the week for that. It's also on the bottom of the bulletin if you want to track along. Um, if you want to jump in, now's a great time to jump in and you'll catch up by the time we are two years down the track. Um, otherwise, yeah, spend a bit of time trying catching up if you've got a th few things to do there. I'm going to close with um, that bit from Romans again, that, that benediction of um, just that joy that, that he had as he was writing Romans. So let's read, I'm going to read that. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Mm -hmm.